0: November of 1994, Sports Illustrated published an article entitled, The High Cost of Glory, which told of the sad story of Kurt Marsh. Kurt Marsh was an all-American offensive lineman for the University of Washington, and while he was in college, many considered him to be the best lineman in the country. He was so good that the Oakland Raiders picked him up in the first round of the NFL draft. He was the twenty-third pick overall. Well, his first season, Marsh lived up to the hype. He started for the Raiders, opening up holes for guys like Hall of Fame running back Marcus Allen. One former teammate said of Marsh that he had the whole package. If he had stayed healthy, he would have been an all-pro over and over again. Unfortunately, Marsh did not stay healthy. After his rookie season, he suffered injuries that would plague him for the next six years. Pro football took such a toll on his body that he was forced to retire in 1987. By the time Marsh retired, he had endured 12 operations, including four, on his right ankle and right foot. After retirement, Marsh's problems were only beginning. For the next seven years, he was tormented by chronic pain and had to have numerous surgical procedures. By 1994, Marsh's right leg was in such bad shape that he had no choice but to have it surgically removed just below his knee. He was later quoted as saying, I'm so grateful for my football success, but I am paying for it daily. And when asked, was it worth it, Marsh said, probably not. But then he went on to say, even knowing what he knows now, he would do it the same all over again. Can you believe that? It's incredible, isn't it? Marsh's story, though surprising, is is not unique. Statistics tell us that the average NFL career lasts less than four years and that 40% of all NFL athletes retire due to injury. I also read a similar article along with Marsh's about several athletes who had endured career ending and some life-altering injuries who, like Marsh, have the same attitude. Many of them felt as if four to six years of playing in the NFL was well worth enduring a major life-altering injury. Let's be honest, that's crazy, isn't it? Is it just me or is that nuts? To be honest with you, when I I read this article, I thought, these guys are crazy. Somebody needs to have their head examined. I mean, wouldn't you agree with me that being in good health is better than playing four to six years and not playing most of those years and losing a limb or worse? But here's the truth of the matter. There are many who hear this story of Kurt marsh and they'll say oh well you know it's his leg it's his life he can do with it what he wants and i'm sure marsh had this same mentality after the third or fourth surgery when the doctors told him hey it's time to hang it up it's time to retire i'm sure he thought to himself hey it's my body it's my life if i want to risk it all for football i will And we hear this kind of reasoning all the time in our world today, don't we? We do. People who say, I can live however I want to live because this is my life. If I want to do drugs, I'll do them. If I want to get drunk every night, I will. If I want to have sex outside of marriage with multiple partners, I will have it. If I don't want to keep this baby, I will get rid of it. Why? Because this is my life. This is my body. Is it really? If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This morning, we are going to be looking at verses 12 through 20. Like we've said already, the Christians at Corinth were a mess, weren't they? Though they had been saved out of this wicked and godless city, the city of Corinth, And though they had been set apart by God, many of them were still allowing these old influences from their ungodly past impact their new life in Christ. So Paul writes this letter to them, calling for them to do away with these old influences from their old life. Well, in chapter 6, he continues with this type of message. In the second half of this chapter, we learn that the Christians in Corinth, among other things, were struggling with sexual sin. So Paul writes to them here to address this issue and to call for them to go at life differently and to be set apart. And just a word of of warning here this morning for our our parents with young kids in the service this morning. I know that many of you received an email this week. This is kind of a follow-up to that email I sent this This text that we're gonna deal with this morning primarily deals with sexual immorality. And no, I'm not gonna be getting too explicit and I'm not gonna, you know, I'm gonna be using discretion here this morning. I wanted to let you know that and and to give you the opportunity of whether or not you wanted to take them out or leave them in. It's it's your choice and and trust me, I'm not gonna be offended if I see anybody head out with young kids. I understand, okay? But I wanted to let you know that, all right? Okay, now. What we're going to learn from this text this morning is that this reasoning that says, this is my body, I can do with it what I want, is unbiblical. The truth is, my body and your body, our bodies, this body is God's body. And because that is true, we are to honor God with it. And in the following verses... Paul is going to explain to us how to do just that. He is going to tell us how we honor God with our bodies. First, he tells us this. To honor God with our bodies, we must reject worldly philosophies that enslave the body reject worldly philosophies that enslave the body. Like we've said already, the the Corinthians were easily influenced by the world around them. And and though many of them had, had given their life to the Lord, they were still allowing these ungodly beliefs and teachings from their pagan past influence their new life in Christ. This was especially true when it came to the topic of sex. Like I've told you already, Corinth was a godless city. Not only was it filled with materialistic and and power-hungry types of people, but it was also filled with immoral and perverse types of people. In this city, sexual immorality was as common a practice as eating, drinking, and sleeping. It was. Remember last week I told you that litigation was the favorite pastime of the corinthians if that was first sexual immorality was a close second was the moral reputation of the corinthians was so bad that the word corinth was used synonymously with sex the Greek word, Corinthians, oh which translates to behave like a Corinthian, was often used by other Greeks when they were referring to sexually immoral activity. That's a bad reputation, isn't it? Also, the Corinthians, like many in our world today, they had the attitude of, what's the big deal? It's only sex. It's only biology, right? I mean, we're just animals. You don't get upset when dogs do it. Why do you get upset when we do it? And we hear this type of reasoning in our world today, don't we? And unfortunately, these ungodly philosophies begin to make their way into the church. And this is what was happening in in Corinth. So Paul writes to them here, and he calls for them to to do away with these ungodly philosophies that, that, that carry with it disastrous consequences, so let's take a moment and let's look at a few of these worldly philosophies that were threatening the, the church at Corinth. First, many of the Corinthians shared this mentality. Worldly philosophy number one, I am free to do what I want. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? little Rolling Stones theology this morning. It's what they had. Many of the Corinthians reasoned in this way. Look at verse 12. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Now, you'll notice in your Bible there are quotation marks around the phrase, all things are lawful for me. And and, and you'll also find the same in chapter 10, verse 23. And these quotation marks have been added by the translators to indicate that what Paul is saying here was probably, he's probably quoting a well-known phrase among the Corinthians. More than likely, the Corinthians live by this philosophy that all things are lawful for me. In other words, because Christ has removed the penalty of sin from our lives, we are free to live however we want to live. They believed that to be the definition of Christian liberty. Some in the church thought, if you want to sin a little bit, no big deal. Jesus has taken away the penalty of sin, so you're free to do it anytime you want it. If you want to have an affair with your stepmother, like the young man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, no big deal. You're no longer under the law. You're free to live as you want. If you want to take one another to court and defraud one another like we talked about last week in the passage Paul wrote in the first part of chapter 6, you, you can do it. Go ahead. Christ has removed the penalty of sin. Therefore, you are free to live as you want any old time. If you want to have sex outside of marriage with multiple partners, go right ahead because all things are lawful. Anybody ever hear of believers reasoning in this way? Ever heard someone say because Christ has saved me I'm now free to live however I want to live? I have. The Corinthians were the same way. They would say we're not immoral we're just free in Christ. We're not ungodly, we're under God's grace. Now notice that Paul does give credibility to the phrase, all things are lawful, but he qualifies it by saying, but not all things are helpful. Not all things are profitable. In other words, you're free. You're free to make your own decisions, but Paul says, know that some of your decisions that you make are sinful, and they're immoral, and they carry with them severe consequences. Like Adam and Eve adam and eve they were free to eat from any tree in the garden now they were warned about one particular tree but they freely chose to eat from it and that decision brought about serious and disastrous consequences paul is giving his readers a similar word of warning here in this passage he's making the point though you're free to make your own decisions though your sin can be forgiven the price to pay is terribly high because sin never brings profit. It always brings pain, always brings heartache, always brings loss. And this is especially true when you talk about sins of a sexual nature. Look at this quote by John MacArthur. It's a great quote. No sin that a person commits has more built-in pitfalls, problems, and destructiveness than sexual sin. It has broken more marriages, shattered more homes, caused more heartache and disease, and destroyed more lives than alcohol and drugs combined. It causes lying, stealing, cheating, and killing, as well as bitterness, hatred, slander, gossip, and unforgiveness. Wow. Consequences are devastating. Paul says, though you are free to do it, though you can can commit sin, you're you're free to partake in immorality of this kind. And though you can also be forgiven for it, the consequences that it brings are disastrous. Believers, this is so important for us to realize because many, they reason in this way, they will say, my sin is, is my sin doesn't affect anybody else and and they will also tell themselves you know God will forgive me of it so I, I just might as well do it listen first if that's your mentality you need to question whether or not you have salvation to begin with because a follower of Christ by definition follows Christ Now it's not that we don't slip up we do but we have a desire to live for him and follow him and second though God does forgive at times, consequences for sin, especially sexual sin, remain. And these consequences are devastating. They include broken marriages, shattered homes, estranged children. The price is terribly high. The second half of verse 12, Paul qualifies this Corinthian catchphrase once again and he says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Paul says, though you're free to do what you want, there are certain activities that if you give yourself to these things, they will enslave you. Have you ever heard the saying, be careful what you own, that it does not own you? Anybody ever heard that or something like it? Well, that's what was going on in Corinth. Once again, there were some living by this motto, I'm free to do what I want. All things are lawful for me. And though they were flying under the banner of Christian freedom, and they claimed to be in control of the situation, and and they acted as, as if they were in the driver's seat, they were in fact slaves to their own desires. That's why Paul gives them this word of warning here. In verse 12, he makes the point, though believers are free, To make their own decisions, though they're free to do what they want, not every act leads to true freedom. Some decisions lead to bondage. There's nothing more enslaving than sexual sin. I know a lot of people who, several people who are addicted to pornography, others who cannot stop sleeping around and and those who continually involve themselves in relationships that don't honor God. And like a dog returning to its own vomit, they come back and back again and again because there is some gratification in that, but but it's short-lived and it's unsatisfying. So they come back again and again and again and it always leaves them wanting more and more and more. Though some of these individuals fly under the banner of, I'm free, I'm forgiven, I'm liberated, the truth of the matter is they're enslaved, they're unrepentant, and they're dominated by their own desires. It's a miserable situation to witness. Scripture tells us time and time again, Those who are truly free are those who are able to to resist these urges and and live for God by the power of the Spirit. That is what true freedom is. Those who are free have self-control. Those who are free are able to resist these urges and live for God through the power of the Spirit. Let's be honest. If being free meant... To freely partake in sin like some people define it who needs Christianity for that right? Isn't that what we did before we were saved? Freely partook in sin? Who needs Christianity to, to freely partake in sin? No that's not what Christian freedom is. Freedom in Christ means we are free from ourselves. We're free from from sin though we do still struggle we have this newfound desire and through God's help, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are able to resist. Second philosophy that was threatening the church is this. I am to obey my urges. Look at the first part of verse 13. Paul says, food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. Notice this statement is also in quotes. Once again, the translators put it in quotation because they're indicating that Paul is is probably quoting a a Corinthian motto here. Within the... Uh, While the first phrase, all things are are lawful, was probably circulating primarily in Christian circles in the church, this was probably circulating throughout the whole city. And this phrase is definitely the more worldly of the two mottos. Now, both are bad and both are wrong, but this is definitely more worldly. Many in Corinth believe that, uh, that, that sex is just another biological thing biological urge the same as as eating and drinking when you get hungry you eat when you're thirsty you drink when you feel like you want to have sex find someone and, and go do it that's their motto and it sounds very familiar doesn't it sounds a lot like our culture today doesn't it listen to this quote by by Hugh Hefner sex is a biological necessity so find yourself a girl who's like-minded and let yourself go. It's no different than eating and drinking. The exact same motto as a Corinthians. That's the view of many in our world today. It is. We, we, we've been told by some that we are nothing more than just highly evolved animals. And we've been told that we have the base, the same needs and instincts as a dog and we're to act upon those instincts like dogs do. When we get hungry, we eat. We get tired, we sleep. When we have an itch, we scratch it. And when we want to have sex, we're to have it. It's not sinful. It's just biological. Here's the problem with that logic. Scripture sets us apart from the animals, doesn't it? Though we're both created by God and are living, breathing creatures, human beings are the image bearers of God. God did more than just speak us into existence. He formed us from the dust on the ground and He breathed the very breath of life into us. And we're told in Scripture that all of us, male and female, have been created in the image of God. Therefore, we have dignity, we have value, we have worth, not just in this life, but in the life to come. Paul also tells us that man is more than just a biological urge. He says, and God will destroy both one and the other. Now, when Paul says God will destroy both, he's referring back to the statement that he's just made about food and stomachs. And what he means here is that, that these biological urges that we have when we, we hunger and, and thirst all the time and all of these things, they, they, will, they will be done away with when we as believers are in the presence of God we will no longer be in need we will have him we will be in his presence so to say that man is no more than a biological urge is just not true it's just not biblical we are so much more third-worldly philosophy is I can treat my body as I please you ever heard anyone use this logic we hear this all the time don't we People who say, you can't tell me what to do with my body. It's my body. If I want to fill it with harmful substances, I will. If I want to satisfy it by having sex, I, I will. And let's be honest. Like we said earlier, many in the church have bought into this way of thinking. I've heard many believers use this logic. I've heard some say, oh, well, it's their body. They can do with it what they want. Listen, that's not biblical. It's not biblical. Let me ask you this. If it were true that our body, this body, is our own, and we can do with it what we want, then why does God's Word tell us over and over again what to do with it? You follow me? I mean, listen to what Paul says here. He says, this body is not meant for sexual immorality. Paul, under the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit, is telling us what to do with our bodies. I mean, think about it, if if this body were my body, and your body was your body, why would God give you a book filled with commands telling us what we can and cannot do with it? Truth is, this body is not our own, and we are not free to do with it what we want. Well, after addressing some of the negative worldly philosophies, Paul begins to uh, talk about some helpful biblical philosophies when thinking about our bodies. While we are to reject worldly philosophies that enslave the body, get this, we're to accept biblical philosophies that liberate the body. The first philosophy that... Paul calls for his readers to accept is this one biblical philosophy number one. Your body is for God. Your body is for God. We mentioned this a little bit a moment ago, but look again at the end of verse thirteen and into verse fourteen. Paul says the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by His power, believers. We have been made to believe something that is clearly false in our world today. That this is our body. I mean, follow this simple logic with me. Who made you? God. Who took on flesh and came to live in bodily form without sin for us? God. Emmanuel. God with us, right? Whose body was killed and raised three days later to redeem your body? God. Who's coming again to judge the deeds and misdeeds you've done in your body? God, who will you and your body spend eternity with someday in the future? God. So who owns your body? God does. It doesn't take someone with a PhD to figure that out. Your body is God's body. He made it and He redeemed it. So you can't, if you claim to be a Bible-believing Christian, you cannot make the statement that this is my body. It's not. You didn't make it. You didn't redeem it. You're not going to resurrect it. And you're not going to judge it. It's God's body. Therefore, we have to be a good steward of it and honor God with it. It's key. God did not give us this body to do with it, whatever we Want to do with it. He gave it to us to honor Him, to bring glory to Him, to worship Him, and to obey Him. The second point your sin involves Christ. It does. It's a big one. Like we said earlier, many reason in this way. They say, My sin is my sin. And it doesn't affect anybody else, really. Well, look at what Paul says in verses 15 through 18. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? In other words, when you were saved, you were joined with Christ. Your body was joined with Him. You became one with Him. And this is not the only place we're told this. Paul tells us this in Ephesians 1, 1 Corinthians 12, and in Romans 12. And he also says it again in verse 17 of this chapter. Paul says, but he who is joined with the Lord becomes one spirit with Him. We are one with Christ. Paul says because this is the case, when you sin, you are in a way involving Christ in the process. Not that He's sinning with you, but in a real way, in a real sense, you are taking Him along with you because you are one in Christ. Look at what Paul says in the second half of verse 15. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Never. basically says because your body is one in Christ are you then gonna go out with him and be with a prostitute now some of you hear that and you say that's disgusting that's good if you feel that way because that's what sexual immorality is it's disgusting it should turn our stomachs that's the way that's what scripture wants us to feel that's the way that's the way the writers want us to feel when we read these kinds of things some will even say well that doesn't even apply to me i've never been with the prostitute well though that was a specific problem for the corinthians any sexually immoral act will apply here just take your pick because you are one with christ whatever activity you engage in you in a very real way are are connecting jesus to it because he is present with you. That's why it's so terrible when we run off into sexual sin. Because in a very real way, because we are one with Christ, because He's so connected with us, we're we're, we're bringing Him along with us. So for those of you that think that what I'm doing is not affecting anyone else, that's just not the case, is it? Look at philosophy number three, biblical philosophy number three. Your immoral acts have spiritual ramifications. Look at what Paul says in verse 16. He says, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Paul shows us here once again that that sex is more than just a biological thing. It's a spiritual thing. It is. Sex is more than a physical union, it's a spiritual union. It unites people in a deep and spiritual way. That's why in the Old Testament if a man would sleep with a woman and he was not married to her, then then he was to marry her. Because the two had consummated a spiritual union. That's why in the Bible it says when adultery is committed, that's grounds for divorce. The, the marriage bond has been broken because one has consummated a spiritual union outside of the marriage. So Paul is telling them here, to those of you all who have, who have joined with prostitutes, who have had sex with prostitutes, you have become one flesh with that prostitute. You have united with them on a deep spiritual level. So those society says, no big deal. It's casual. It's natural. It's biological. God's word says, if it's not done the way God intended it, within the confines of marriage, it is a big deal. It's immoral, and it's a perversion. That's why Paul says in verse 18, look at it here. Flee. Flee from sexual immorality, and let me tell you, Flee means flee. It means run. Now some of you are saying, well that's not very polite. You know, I don't want to be mean. Who cares? Run. But, but somebody needs to counsel this person. Not you. Get out of there. That's about the simplest application that you'll get when you that you'll find in the scriptures. Run away from sexual immorality. Men, for those of you who travel a lot and are away from family, you need to pack of some asics running shoes in your bag be ready to flee when you find yourself in a compromising situation for you single folks in here you need to have a pair on at all times okay be ready to run and i say that jokingly but i mean that seriously it's what Paul means when he says flee from sexual immorality. And the reason why is because, like we've said earlier, the consequences that result from sexual immorality, they are disastrous. Paul says every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. What I think Paul is getting at here is that the, the sin of sexual immorality, it cuts much deeper than other offenses. Now, some will say, well, I thought sin was sin in God's eyes, and no, that's been greatly misused, and we'll talk about that on another day. What I'm talking about here are the consequences that come from sin, not the sin itself. And I think we would all agree that consequences to some sins are greater than others, right? I mean, if you get caught jaywalking, my guess is, unless you get hit by something the consequences are going to be less severe and easier to overcome than consequences that come from from, from, uh, committing adultery. Am I right? Yeah. So Paul is saying because the consequences of sexual sin are so severe, you need to flee. You need to avoid it like the plague. If you find yourself in a compromising situation, pull a Usain Bolt and get out of there. All right? Number four. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Now, unlike in chapter 3, verse 16, where Paul is addressing the church corporately when he says, you are God's temple, remember we talked about that, he's talking plurally about the the church corporately, here in chapter 6, verse 19, he is speaking to believers individually. He's saying, your body is a temple because it is indwelled with the very Spirit of God. And Paul says that to make a very practical point. Just like you wouldn't go out and commit a sexually immoral act in God's temple, you shouldn't commit it anywhere because you are God's temple. You are indwell with the very Spirit of God. How many of you would ever consider committing a sexually immoral act in this building? You say, that's sick. I don't even want to picture that. Well, guess what? When you go out into the world and you commit a sexually immoral act, same thing. Because you are God's temple. You are indwelt with the very Spirit of God. Paul ends this passage with an excellent summary statement that, that I, I would like all of you to commit to memory. This is one of my favorite, favorite verses in, in the scriptures. It's at the end of verse 19 and end of verse 20. Paul says this, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That's it. That's the point. What is to be our philosophy on life? And how are we to live accordingly as followers of Christ? Paul tells us here, he says, Believers, you are not your own your body, my body, our body, this body is not ours. It's God's. It's been paid for by the blood of the Lord Jesus. Therefore, what are we to do with our bodies? We're to honor God with it. We're to obey Him with it. We are to praise Him with it. We are to glorify God in our bodies. Let me end with this. I've been speaking primarily to Believers, this morning I do want to end with a word for those of you in here who are not trusting in Christ for your salvation maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself well Christ is not the Lord of my life so I don't have to answer to Him I can live however I want to live he's not bought me with the price so I don't belong to him therefore I can live however I choose to live in this body let me tell you scripture is clear that you are still not your own though you believe you are scripture is clear that God has created everything you and me included and he has made us for a purpose he has made us to live for him and the only way you can live him is by turning from your life of sin and by placing your faith and trust in the person and work of the Lord Jesus who came, like I said earlier, to this earth and lived and died and was raised so that we can be forgiven and be made right with God. Believe me when I say, though you think this life is yours and, and you think that you will answer to no one, that's just not the case. The Bible is clear We will all stand before God one day, and each and every one of us will be in one of two groups. We will either stand alone and be condemned for the sinners that we are and for the works and deeds we've done in this body, or we will be found in Christ and be accepted and be welcomed into God's kingdom with open arms, not because of who we are. Not because of what we have done, but because of who He is and the work that He has done on our behalf. If you're here this morning, you do not have Christ's person and work applied to your life, I pray that this would happen this very morning. I pray right here, right now, you would transfer your trust from yourself to Him. That you would place your trust in Him alone for your salvation. Would you pray with me?